All right, folks, before we get started with today's episode of the Chase Thomas podcast, I wanted to kind of outline the schedule. So there is a schedule and a method to my madness. Um, You are getting Sunday through Saturday, a new episode on this very feed, uh, wherever you get your podcasts every day, a new episode here on Blue Wire in the Chase Thomas podcast. Uh, On Sunday nights, you're getting Stacey Gatsoulias of Locked On Yankees. Um, you're getting, uh, Evan Swords, uh, with the NFL on Monday night, Tuesday nights, you're getting the NBA. So it could be a variety of options there from the athletic, from the ringer, from ESPN, uh, Wednesday, you're getting major league baseball and, uh, the Sunday Wednesday format for, uh, the two shows a week on baseball, uh, is four during the season. So that will change when the season wraps up this fall. But that's with John Taylor Fangraphs on Wednesdays. On Thursdays, you're getting uh, WWE, AEW, college football, college basketball. Um, so, yeah, stats by Will for college basketball. Matt Green, I went to college with the fellow University of North Georgia alumni uh, on Thursdays, along with uh, guys like William R. Washington of RBR Wrestling, uh, Tyler Batiste of The Athletic, uh, Mike Pellucci, um, just all kinds of great uh, pro wrestling thinkers on that thursday show friday sports reporters assemble with robert silverman of the daily beast and andrew hammond of the detroit free press uh biggest stories in sports we talk about it every friday uh, along with the local hour so you're getting atlanta sports guys being from atlanta with max markovich and garrett chapman along with rocky top let's rock with ryan shumpert and ethan stone for the balls saturday special episode so you get uh a non-traditional sports ones different than the rest of the week but you can get uh an example is rosie fletcher uh from den of geek from a few weeks ago on the fear street trilogy so if you watch that go check that out on this very feed um every saturday different kind of thing um but that that is the schedule for the time being so i just wanted to kind of lay that out for you guys uh yeah so new episode oh also sundays mondays tuesdays wednesdays You'll get other guests. You'll get reporters. You'll get beat reporters on those shows. You'll get uh, athletes. You'll get general managers. You'll get other stuff uh, mixed in with the the main the main shows. So, yeah, that's all on this feed every day. Leave a five star rating and review if you are a Apple Podcast listener. I would greatly appreciate it. All right, Uncle Darren, let's go. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to a Tuesday night edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. I'm still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and I'm joined by a former Texas A&M Aggie, Jay Arnold. Jay, good evening, sir. How are you? I'm doing all right, Chase. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks for being here, man. Um, I'm in UT. I, I, the real UT, not that uh, that school in Austin. I'm a grad student here at uh, UTK Knoxville, and um, I'm curious. Did you have you been? Have you, you never played Neilan, right? Uh, no, I did not get the chance to play there. I actually don't think A&M has played there. Or I guess this past year was the first year they went to mm-hmm. uh, Knoxville. Well, we don't have to talk about that. That was that was, a, <laughs> that was an awful awful experience. We don't have to talk about 2020 Tennessee at all. Actually, I'm okay with. Uh, avoiding it entirely um how long has it been so like when you go back to your playing career and you think about it do you, does it feel like a different different time like just a different lifetime ago yeah i mean especially after 2020 right everything feels like the pre- the prehistoric times uh but yeah i i feel like 
man, it's been so long and A&M has changed in so many ways since uh, my playing days there. Well, I wanted to ask you, because you've got this, you have a unique perspective on this. So when you were coming out of high school, because this is something that I'm so fascinated by, and I really wanted to talk to you tonight because I want to pick your brain. I don't know if you heard this or not, Jay, but there is another Texas school that is making the move to the SEC. And your programming, College Station, does not like that. And rightfully so. They left this for a lot of reasons. Um, the recruiting picked up. And this is something that you saw um, early on, I believe, at the end of your tenure. But, like, moving to the SEC is just a – it was a huge recruiting boom because they went from around the – I think it was, like, the late 20s. I think Bud Elliott did this. It was either Bud Elliott or Bill Connolly who did this study on it. But, like, just moving from the Big 12 and out of the Texas shadow and being able to offer – kids in the state of texas the opportunity to play in the sec was huge um so now with texas coming over and i think it's gonna be sooner rather than later because i don't think this uncomfortability going on uh this year is gonna last i don't think they're gonna do that for four more years um but when you look at that like do you do you, did you sense that when you were getting recruited that like that was something that would be a difference maker for kids who are on the fence between college station and austin uh, for me personally, it was a big part of it. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I was Kevin Sumlin's first full recruiting class. And being the SEC school, uh, the only SEC school in Texas, was a big part of their recruiting pitch. Uh, I think things have changed a little bit, just the dynamic between A&M and Texas uh, since that time. But uh, as far as it goes, yeah, I mean, that was a, a huge part of the recruiting pitch when I was coming out of high school. Uh, and for a lot of fellow members of my recruiting class and a couple of the classes afterwards, uh, it was always just a big selling point. Obviously, uh, with the facilities changing, uh, some of the improvements that have been made at the school uh, since A&M has made the move to the SEC, and I think perhaps even some uh, more national recognition, I think A&M has an, a little bit easier of a time recruiting. Uh, but in those first few years, uh, it was definitely – a big boon to have the only SEC school in Texas in your back pocket as a card. And uh, I can see why A&M fans may be a little bit concerned about having Texas join uh, the conference now uh, and how that may impact recruiting. But I I, I do think that at this point uh, there's enough positive recruiting pitches that fans don't need to be too concerned. I think part of that is Jimbo, right? And like just the amount of money that this administration is putting into the football program, the 10-year commitment to Jimbo. Like, I think it's just a different Texas A&M than the Texas A&M we grew up with. I think it would be a a lot more concerning if it was the Dennis Franchoni era or something like that. I would be a lot more concerned if I was an Aggie fan. I I really do believe that this is here to say. I mean, they think they're ranked six in the preseason in the coaches poll this year. Um, and that's with questions at quarterback, if it's going to be Haynes King, whoever, and moving on from Kellen Mond and all that. But I, I think it's going to be, it's I, I, from a Tennessee fan and just from somebody who watched a lot of Texas A&M versus Texas growing up and like that they played around Thanksgiving. And that was a delight. Like, I'm glad to have that back because for you, don't you, did like did players talk about it like did players talk about like wow it would even if we're not in the same conference it would have been cool for kids who grew up in texas to have texas versus texas a&m the two biggest schools in the state to play every year like even out of conference didn't it just feel kind of weird oh 100 percent. and you know being uh 
growing up in Texas, I, I actually grew up a fan of OU, mm. uh, who's maybe the forgotten school in this whole deal. Uh, coming to the conference, obviously not really, but a lot of the flack has been directed at Texas, I guess. Uh, but uh, even as an OU fan, uh, the Thanksgiving tradition of watching A&M in Texas play was just kind of a key part of growing up. I mean, mm-hmm. I wasn't a fan of either school, but it's still just a fantastic game to watch. Uh, and, you know, I would have loved to have gotten the chance to play in that game. Uh, obviously, it never happened, but, I mean, <sighs> Texas high school recruiting is a small world, and you have a bunch of kids ending up at one or the other school there, and we would always talk to each other about that game. There would always be a little bit of uh, banter about who would have had the superior team in a given year, and, you know, we'd always joke about just going to play the game without coaching staffs or athletic departments or anything out in the field in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) That's really cool. Um, So... The kids growing up, like when you were in high school and you're being recruited, like did did y'all talk about the whole Texas versus Texas A&M thing? Was that is that something that is just talked about a lot? Because like I just assume that Tech and Baylor, um, TCU, like even though they've improved a little bit, but like the Texas, the the best players and the just OU, it's OU, it's Arkansas a little bit, especially Sam Pittman jumping back into the fold, but. Um, Texas and A&M is that something that y'all talk about like which one do you think you're leaning is like how does how does that work and do you think that will change with Texas now entering the SEC with A&M yeah I mean it was definitely uh I think A&M and Texas were probably the two schools that were talked about the most uh but I mean it also changed based on where you were in the state right Mm -hmm. uh so like where I grew up in Rockwall uh about 20 minutes east of Dallas okay uh you know, early on in my high school, like 2010, 2009, Arkansas was definitely more of a player uh, back uh, when mm. Bobby Petrino was still there. Uh, Oklahoma's always big in the Metroplex area. But as you get further east or uh, further south into the, like the Houston area, LSU becomes much more of a factor. Uh, so, you know, the, the Dallas area kids kind of talked about the, the four schools, I would say, were OU, Texas, A&M, and uh, Arkansas. Uh, and then whatever you had down south or east, uh, a lot of times uh, Arkansas would get replaced with LSU. And so those were the schools that you would kind of talk about whenever you're going to camps or uh, playing games uh, against uh, different high schools. And it was definitely just kind of a – obviously there was a little bit of a dynamic change whenever A&M – moved to the SEC and uh, we're going to be competing with your Arkansas, your LSU, and we're no longer competing with Texas. Uh, it's just, again, it goes back to just kind of a whole change and kind of the perception of A&M as a program. I think whenever uh, that SEC change was first made, uh, before that, I, I think Texas was – just kind of always seen as a superior program in state. And a lot of that had to do with Mac Brown's success there uh, at the time. But uh, I, I think the move to the SEC did a lot to, to shift the, the perceptions of AM as the second tier program in Texas. 
do kids do you think in texas now see AM as the premier program i i you know i think it's tough to say i think it's more of a equal footing mm. uh i think during the fran years and the sherman years texas was seen as kind of head and shoulders above the rest of the state uh i think now uh it's it's more of a level playing field if that makes sense mm-hmm. do you think it matters to recruits that AM hasn't like since they moved over the recruiting's been better um someone during your time obviously beat bama you had the manzel years you had the Kellamon years, which were still solid. Um, you brought in Mike Elko. You've spent a lot of money um, on this program, but it hasn't translated to a playoff berth yet. I mean, you're on the precipice, and I would argue that Texas A&M was one of the four best college football teams last year. Um, does that? How much does that matter on the recruiting trail? Like the wins, and just like, or how much of it is it just like? Are you closer to Austin? Or are you closer to College Station? Like, how? Like, what do you think is the biggest factor for kids like the four and five stars in the state of Texas to differentiate between the te- state of Tech or the University of Texas and Texas A and M? Well, I think a lot of it comes down to the individual kid. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you can't really put too much stock on what's said. Uh, I do think a winning culture makes a, a huge difference. I mean. Uh, you, you look at like uh, Clemson uh, before Dabo was there, uh, and I think that's kind of a similar position to where A and M is, honestly. Uh, and now that Jimbo's come in, A and M is kind of sitting on the precipice. Uh, I'm not. I'm not saying that will happen for sure, but obviously the uh, facilities and the money have been poured in to try to get to where uh, Clemson is now. Uh, but I think it's a big perception among recruits that uh, a school is willing to do uh, whatever it takes to win. And I, I think A&M has kind of proved that. Uh, and, again, I think it just comes down to the culture, uh, the cultural fit for an athlete, right? Uh, you know, obviously the SEC isn't going to be a distinguishing factor anymore. Playing in the best conference was a selling point. Now both schools are going to be in the same conference. That's not going to be as much of a selling point. Uh, obviously, Austin and College Station both kind of have their pros and cons. Uh, in Austin, if you were if you had a five star kid and Texas A&M called you, like Jimbo calls you, and he's like, "Hey, I need you to I need you to sell this Rockwell kid on College Station and the living experience and the college experience at College Station over Austin." How would you do it? Uh, I think you. The first thing you point out is that College Station is you're going to be the focal point of that city. The football team is essentially the the focal point of College Station. The university is the focal point of the of College Station. Uh, obviously, there's a lot more that goes into the BCS, the Bryan College Station area, uh, and I don't want to discount the community as a whole. But I think that uh, that community kind of lives for college football. It's a it's a big part of the atmosphere. I think in a similar way that Tuscaloosa is driven by Alabama football or that Clemson's driven by Clemson football or that Auburn's driven by Auburn football. I think there's something to be said for these communities that are uh, not necessarily major cities, but that are, are driven by uh, the college football team that's there. Uh, you know, in Austin, there's so many other things to do, which can be a positive in its own light, but it also takes away 
from uh, the, the atmosphere in my mind. Hmm. What was your favorite part about going to College Station? And I mean, I talked about it. It's the atmosphere. It's just the way the town lives and breathes football. Hmm. Something about Kevin Sumlin that you really liked that maybe a lot of people don't know about. And I I just, I felt like Coach Sumlin was was just a player's coach, man. I think he just kind of uh, enjoyed the game. He was fun to be around. Uh you know, I, I think he was a. Uh, I don't know. It's tough to look back on it. Uh, obviously, there's it didn't end the best way in in College Station for him. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I really enjoyed playing under him. I mean, that dude won, and that guy he beat Bama, and it it didn't end well. But like you see, it's just it's not that easy, and it's unfortunate also with what happened in Arizona. Do you still talk with Coach Sumlin at all? Uh, no, uh, so I, I don't talk with Coach Sumlin uh, that much. Mm. Uh, my position coach, actually, whenever I was at A&M, mm. uh, Terry Price, is still at A&M uh, mm. under Jimbo. So uh, I'll check in with him every once in a while. But uh, no, I, I haven't had the haven't had the chance to talk to someone since uh, since he left for Arizona. Who were you closest to on the team when you were at A&M? Uh, I mean, you, generally you stick with the guys that came in with the, your recruiting class. Mm. I mean, especially the defensive line guys that came in in that 2013 class. Uh, Deshaun Hall, Hardrick Walker, uh, those guys were the guys I hung out with the most. Did you? What was Miles Garrett like? Like when you like you playing the same position? Like how did that work? When you saw him, were you just like, what even is this? Yeah, I mean, Miles Garrett, the first time he came into practice was pretty much when I realized that I probably wasn't going to be an NFL player. Guys <laughs> like that in the league. <laughs> it was I just mean, immediate. That, that is just a different level of an athlete, and uh, there's, there's no other way to describe it than he's a freak of nature. What was it like practicing with him? Like, what um, what were co- like? Was it just one of those things where y'all were working together and doing different stuff? Because like when I go to Tennessee practice, like it, it's interesting. You can just see certain guys and the way they stand out, and other players looking at them, and it's just like, oh, what do you, what do you even do here? Um, were y'all looking at each other and talking with each other? Like, okay, this is just like not even fair. What he's gonna do to opposing SEC offenses? Yeah, I mean that's pretty much it. Like, I so my freshman year, I played defensive end, and then. Mm. I moved into the interior uh, my sophomore year. Uh, and there, there were times in practice where he would be outside and I'm just like kind of caught up in awe at how easily, how easy he makes it look practicing against offensive linemen. And I'm just like, there's no real point in me being here, right? I mean, you're, you're taking up like three blockers on your own as a true freshman. I can only imagine how much better he's going to get and how much better he did get. That's That's wild. Um, we're going to pause for a quick break for our sponsors, but we'll be right back. All right. We're back as we wrap up here on the Texas A&M edition of the podcast. Um, so I, I'm also curious and I'm sure you've been asked this a lot. What was Johnny Manziel like as a teammate? Yeah. I mean, it always comes up, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I am curious. When you play with somebody as, uh, as well known as Johnny, it's usually the first mm. question. 
Uh, he was just the ultimate competitor, man. I mean, practicing against him as a defensive lineman sucked, right? Because you're not you're not allowed to hit the quarterback. Mm-hmm. So you get back there and you think that you have a sack and you're pulling up, and he's like, you know, you never would have got the sack on that, right? So he's chirping us in practice. Mm. He's just was that common though? Was Kenny Hill doing that too? Was Kyle Allen, or was it a Johnny thing? I mean, no, it was it was a common thing, but it's just that I think every quarterback has to have that kind of competitive drive to be Mm. successful. Uh, And I think (laughs) there's just something about whenever Johnny said it, part of you knew it was kind of true. Like he probably would have gotten away. (laughs) Had they not blown the whistle early. How did it work with coaches? Because of how much he freelances. Was Sumlin like, were coaches just like losing their minds at him freelancing as much as he did? Or was it just, was it like a lot of no, 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 yes. Or was it just like, we know what Johnny is and this is fine. Yeah, I mean, so I wasn't there in 2012 for his Mm -hmm. Heisman campaign uh, under, under Cliff. But I mean, when... When you have those two guys, Cliff's obviously an offensive genius, and Johnny is Johnny. Uh, I think a lot of magic happened there, and uh, not to say that it, it didn't happen as much in 2013. I think there was a little bit of a come down, but uh, I, I think you definitely see that when whenever you have a player like Johnny, uh, you you kind of have to let him have the reins a little bit. Uh, you know, if you if you try to fence in such an electric athlete uh it's only gonna come out negative uh you you try to fix somebody in a box that they don't fit in and that's uh i think when you get a lot of turnovers when you see a lot of forced errors uh and i think that the coaching staff kind of realized that and they kind of had to let him off the leash and uh do his thing and obviously sometimes it looked like it was going to turn out bad and he would make the most out of uh, frightening situations, and I think you you hit it on the head. It was a lot of no, 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 yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, what was the was there a funny moment that you remember most about Manziel in practice, or anything like that? Well, is there something where you're like that, like something about Johnny that stands out to you during that time? Uh, I mean, the memory I always like to talk about is uh, in the locker room during two days, mm-hmm. uh, my freshman year. We put a couple of defensive backs in uh, laundry carts with their helmets and shoulder pads on, and uh, we did locker room jousting. Mm. And uh, I was pushing one of the carts, and Johnny was pushing one of the other carts. And that will always be one of my favorite moments (laughs) from college, Uh, in spite of the fact that we got immediately yelled at by our defense coordinator for (laughs) doing that and having it posted online uh, it's like you guys look like a bunch of idiots it's like yeah but we had a lot of fun doing that <laughs> right you're in college you gotta have some fun um especially during two days i mean it's such a grind mm-hmm. uh it, you gotta find some kind of distraction so i mean we'd play like four square in the locker room uh we'd take the trash cans out of the boxes they're in and shoot giant tape basketballs in there i mean you're just basically trying to find anything and that locker room jousting. We only got to do it once because uh, it didn't take us long to get in trouble, but uh, it was definitely a great moment. So another thing I wanted to pick your brain about because you, I imagine you see the game differently than I do. So when I'm taking notes and I'm looking at stuff, like 
I know I've watched games with former quarterbacks or talk with them about it, and it's like they're watching the ball all the time, and just the way they watch football is different than the way a fan would watch. Do you watch it differently, and when you're with friends and stuff like that, do they get annoyed because you see things that they just don't pick up on, or you're just like, oh, that guard's going to pull, that's going to do this, they're going to do this? Like, how does how does that work when you're looking at the A gap, A gap, B gap, and all that kind of stuff? Oh, yeah, I always get yelled at whenever I'm pointing out alignment, saying that guy's really light in his stance. He's probably going to either pull or drop into a pass set. Uh, <laughs> looking at the personnel percentages, I mean, well, it looks like they're in 22. This is almost 100% a run uh, based on what I've seen. And they're looking at me like, God, dude, I don't even understand what you're talking about. And the best is when I just get into straight up breaking down, playing the trench, and I'm just like, they're – looking at something completely different and mm-hmm. I'm just watching the hand fighting between a guard and a, a defensive tackle. Like, wow, did you see that guy get hand positioning on that? <laughs> so does that lessen the enjoyment as a fan now that you're, you're out of that world or does it amplify where you're like, Oh, this is fun to just kind of be an analyst when I'm watching and just be like an expert on this. Uh, I mean, it's a little bit of both, right? Mm-hmm. Like sometimes it's hard to, to separate yourself uh, from the team and just kind of enjoy it as a fan. But at the same time, it's also nice to not have to stress about uh, getting yelled at and film the next day whenever there's a bad performance. Mm. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, what uh, what is, what has changed most about just the way defensive linemen have to be built? Because like I imagine like we've seen the evolution of linebackers where it's just if you can't cover, you can't stay on the field and most teams – uh, base coverage or base defenses are nickel packages and two linebackers and they got to be able to roam they got to be able to cover got to be smaller defensive linemen have also had to change and you have guys who sometimes get in their stance and sometimes just lurk off the edge like do you do you wonder what you would have been um 10 years ago almost now like if you come up with this iteration of defensive alignments or do you think um it would have been mostly the same well, I think for one thing is uh, with defensive lines now is you have a lot more rotation. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> you know, it, it used to be where you, you had your, your front four, your front three out there, and, uh, you know, they, they didn't really come out. But now you're kind of rotating guys in. You may rotate them in on personnel uh, on a personnel basis. You know, if you have a really good pass rusher, you may want to get him on, on third downs. If you have somebody that you want in uh, on the early downs or short yardage situations, you may bring that defensive tackle in. Uh, and I, I think that's one thing that I have noticed is you're on the inside in particular, uh, you don't have those big guys that are just kind of taking up space anymore. Mm. You have to have guys that are really able to shed blocks and make plays. Hmm. Um, do you have any interest in coaching down the line or are you, you done? Uh, I mean, you know, it's hard to kick that football bug. Mm. So it's something that I've thought about, but I'm not necessarily, <clears throat> sorry, I'm not necessarily looking to get into it actively, but, uh, it's something that I may entertain down the road. Okay. Jay, well, this has been great, very informative. I am so glad that you made the time to talk with me this evening. I appreciate it. Uh, what can we check out from you across Twitter or anything you'd like to plug before we wrap up here tonight? Yeah, uh, so if you want to follow me on Twitter, uh, I have a very obnoxious Twitter username. Mm. It's at J 
just a letter, Arnold, T-A-M-U, 85. Uh, and if you want to check out, I have a tabletop role-playing podcast uh, that I play with some other folks from uh, A&M Twitter. Mm. Uh, and it's it's a great time if you ever want to check it out. It's called Ain't Slayed Nobody. <laughs> mm. I like it. I like it. Um, I lied. I have one final thing. You you eat a lot of barbecue. Give me your barbecue go to. Like, what is how how should barbecue be done? Is it a three side minimum for you? What is your barbecue connoisseur advice? Yeah. So I like to do what's called the Texas Trinity. Okay. Uh, whenever I'm testing out a new place in Texas, I get their brisket, I get their pork ribs, and I get their sausage. This is a lot of food. Uh, then, yeah, I, well, and then I also like to get uh, two or three sides. But I, I think that barbecue is meant to be shared. So mm. I like to go with a crowd, get a huge tray of barbecue, and then everybody shares and everybody gets a bite of something that they want to try. I think that's the best way to enjoy barbecue. Okay. What are your go-to sides? I love a good mac and cheese. Mm-hmm. I think mac and cheese is a great side. Uh, you know, I'm split on the second side. It depends on what a place is known for. Mm-hmm. I think I think your three other sides besides mac and cheese that I look for is usually going to be coleslaw, potato salad, or beans. Hmm. So I think if you choose from one of those three, it's going to be your best barbecue side. But I mean, there's some places down here in Texas that do some really creative sides. Uh, there's a place called Tejas Chocolate up in Tomball that does a carrot souffle that is absolutely to die for. Uh, Truth Barbecue down here in Houston, they have a hash brown casserole that's delicious. I mean, there's just so many, uh, so many options for sides that you really don't have any shortage of choices. There you go. There you go. All right, man. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for making the time. Uh, Jay, good luck with everything. And uh, maybe we'll circle back in the future. Sounds good, Chase. Thanks again for having me on. All right. Hello, and welcome back to a Tuesday afternoon edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. I am still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and I am joined by a first-timer, Brandon Scoop. Robinson, how are you doing, man? I'm doing good, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here, man. I'm excited. We, you and I have never talked, but we have, uh, we have been on the, uh, we've been on the NBA Twitter sphere for a number of years, a number of years. It's a love-hate relationship that I have with them. <laughs> Um, I have a question. So I don't know your backstory. How did, where did the scoop aspect come, um, with your nickname? So I'm not new. Mm -hmm. Um, I started in the industry at 12. Uh, I had a radio show with the Nets, uh, 97, 98 season. Um, and the following season the 98, 99 season, which was the lockout shortened season. I had a show called net slim slam and planet. Pardon me. That, uh, was broadcast on New York radio. I uh, hosted with Evan Roberts, who's over at WFAN in New York City, um, as well as former Net Albert King uh, and Chris Carino, uh, who's the Nets broadcaster on uh, WFAN here in New York City. Uh, he executive produced the show, did it with uh, Lynn Wilson as well, who's a radio personality. And um, 
the show was called Net Slam and Planet, and I did it. Where basically, I had my own segment called Nets Court, uh, where I was at NBA games, Nets games, visitors locker room, Nets locker room, interviewing players, um, and essentially um, interviewing people for segments. So we're talking Reggie Miller, Carmelo, Dennis Rodman, Gary Payton. Um, you name it, I can go on. Just the '90s era of, of NBA basketball. Um, this was the Nets team that had Sam Cassell, Jason Williams, Kendall Gill, Kerry Kittles. John Calipari was the vice president of basketball operations and the head coach. I was around Michael Jordan in the Last Dance era Bulls, and um, I essentially, you know, that was where I got my start. I was around uh, Stephen A. Smith. Uh, Chris Broussard and Woj when they were on their rise uh, working at newspapers and uh, essentially that show Net Slam and Planet the the, co- well, the the main host of the show Lynn Wilson said you know you're always knowing what's going on in the locker room fashion style every grade has a nickname um, so I'm going to call you Scoop B and it stuck um, in high school I went to a prep school uh, Don Bosco Prep my news my, my, my uh, I had a column called Scoop B's NBA Beat uh, when I went to college my RA asked what I wanted on my door, uh, on my, you know, my, my, my dorm room door, Scoop B. Um, Scoop has always stuck, and uh, here we are now talking today. There you go. I like that, man. Um, do you miss going to Jersey for Nets games? Um, no. I, 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 <laughs> that was I a like, definitive no. I like both eras. For me, I, I mm. grew up in both New mm. Jersey and New York, uh, both uh, respectively, and I understood what basketball meant for Jersey hoops. I understood what it meant for New York City hoops. Um, my, my start in, in basketball came from New York City grassroots. Um, my uncle was a, a commissioner of parks for, for basketball for a, a league called Citywide. Uh, anyone who came out of that league, Stefan Marbury, who is from Brooklyn, um, <clears throat> as well as Bernard King, Rod Strickland, uh, Mark Jackson. So. Um, I understand what New York City basketball meant, but I also understand dollars and cents. Um, my family started a business or had a sneaker store business in, in Harlem. So for me, I understand that New Jersey wasn't selling. And part of the problem in New Jersey was that there was no direct rail system to East Rutherford. Um, and most people who came who weren't using their cars were using Atlantic City buses or they were taking the New Jersey transit train to Secaucus and then taking a cab to the Meadowlands in East Rutherford. And so I felt that when the Nets moved to Newark briefly before they went to Brooklyn, um, it was a better system because Newark Penn Station is right there and, and you could take New Jersey transit, you could take the PATH train and or you could uber from the city or from different parts of new jersey to take you to prudential center in north new jersey but ultimately that wasn't making money and brooklyn just made all the sense in the world financially is there a way or do you see down the line the brooklyn nets rivaling nick's fandom for for kids 20 to 30 years out do i see that them creating a fandom for those Mm. kids um yeah, because I, I think at the end of the day, they sell hip hop. They sell mm. um, cool. They sell to hipsters in Brooklyn. They sell. Um, I, it, New York City is a Knicks town because it's been the the Knicks, the orange and blue, Madison Square Garden, and all that goes with that has been there forever. Um, I think that the Nets, in my mind, it's it's similar but different. I'm more of an expansion team. 
in that you look at Oklahoma, like Seattle Sonics had to move to Oklahoma. And I was with Russell Westbrook the day he was traded to the Rockets. And when I was with Russ and seeing all of the um, f- the people who were so loyal to him, loved him, didn't want to see him leave, um, I believe that if the Nets were to win a championship in the next couple of years, it would start that process of people falling in love with that. I think you can be born into being uh, a, a Nets fan, but I think it's going to take some time because you have two teams in that city. Mm-hmm. Um but I, but I do think that over time, I mean, the Nets moved to Brooklyn during the 2012-2013 season, if I'm not mistaken. And you've seen a culture. You've seen you've seen some deep playoff runs. Um, you you've seen uh, just uh, you've seen change of hands as far as ownership goes. Um, but they spent money. Now is the time to, to t- kind of rein this thing in and bring something home. So. Um, I, I think if they win a championship, it, it will start it. But I think natural progression has created that process because the Nets have been there for um, almost 10 years now. Your favorite NBA player over the years to, to talk with has been who? Um, that's a loaded question because there's a lot. Um, <laughs> and, and, and there are a lot for different reasons. So growing up as a kid um, – Probably Sean Kemp, hmm. um, because at the time he was a Cav, and he was at a point. I I met him first when he was a Sonic, and then he was a Cav. And when he was a Cav, um, he was teammates with somebody that I knew, um, Brevin Knight, uh, point guard. It was his rookie year uh, with the Cavs, and he coached me when he was like in high school and getting ready to go to college at a basketball camp. And so the connection with Brevin was a natural progression with, with Sean Kemp. And the thing that he and I had in common was he played the saxophone. I played the saxophone. Hmm. Uh, There was a connection there. Then there's guys like Antoine Walker, um, where I just like his game. I've liked it since I was younger. I was glad to see him win a championship in 2006 with the heat. And, um, you know, it's funny because when I came, when I flew into Charlotte for an all-star weekend um, and was waiting f- forever for my Uber at the airport, he was waiting for his Uber at the airport and we reconnected and exchanged phone numbers. Um, then you have guys that were Nets like um, Jason Williams uh, and the unfortunate uh, murder that happened of the limo driver at his, at his house. Um, he and I were very, very cool when he was a net, and we reconnected a few years ago uh, via a mutual friend. Um, Sam Cassell uh, was a net at that point. Uh, we reconnected, um, and it's funny because um, we re- reconnected at a Big Three basketball uh, tournament in Brooklyn, and I showed him the video. He was like, "Yo, I remember you. How the hell are you?" And <laughs> Funny because with the Bucks winning the championship, even during like the first round, I was appearing on ESPN Radio, and there's it's so crazy how life works. You know, the Milwaukee Bucks won a championship, and Jadakiss is getting his flowers now. And there's a line in his in his in his song "Put Your Hands Up" uh, that came off the Kiss the Game Goodbye album, uh, which released 20 years ago over the weekend. Um, and there's a line in the song where he says, "Y'all scared? I can tell because I'm gonna get bucks like Milwaukee, cause like Sam I can sell." And people think Jada, some people think Jadakiss is like this new artist. It's like he's always existed. 
but because of verses, you're now seeing how how dope he is. And, um, you know, Jadakiss is a family friend. So it's like, it's interesting just at this point in life where I am, where I definitely um, have spun two decades um, and can mix um, my love for basketball, my love for um, pop culture, uh, fashion, sneakers, hip hop, and it's all coming full circle. And, you know, this year I started a new role with Valley Sports. So I'm, I'm excited just for where the NBA is going uh, with their 75th anniversary uh, this coming season. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling, but it, it all makes sense in my mind. Why do you think Sam Cassell hasn't gotten a head coaching job yet? I think people still think he's not a name. like, mm. a, like but, but then I felt like Washington Wizards would have been the best spot for him, mm. particularly because um, – I think he's from Baltimore um, and he knows the DC landscape and he has a relationship with Bradley Beal. Um, I think that uh, Sam is a basketball lifer. And sometimes I wonder, some people don't really click until they are around the team that they played for. And Sam's played for a few teams. I feel as though the Rockets are taken. Um, he played briefly with the Mavs, and it's interesting because I feel like Jason Kidd has flourished because minus the Milwaukee Bucks, he's coached for, and 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 even his assistant role with the Lakers, he's he's coached uh, for every team that he started. He coached in Brooklyn, the then New Jersey Nets. He's now in Dallas, and I think as it relates to Sam Cassell, he's has great relationships, but I feel like he's never been able to seal the deal. And it's unfortunate because he's been he's been an assistant coach for like 10 or 12 years. And I think it's going to be one of those Ty Lue situations, unfortunately, where if he goes to a team, it seems that he's going to kind of pick up the spare on, on, the, on the bowling alley and, and become a head coach. And people are going to be like, wow, he's actually brilliant. Like, duh, we already knew this. So. Mm. I, I think as it relates to Sam Cassell, um, it's unfortunate that he's not. I, I'm glad that Doc Rivers has taken him so many places as his assistant, albeit the Boston Celtics, uh, the Philadelphia 76ers, and the Los Angeles Clippers. But, I mean, damn, like Ty Lue got a head coaching job out of it when Doc Rivers left Los Angeles. And it's like, when's it, when is it Sam Cassell's turn? Yeah, it's just interesting. He's been around a long time, and I thought he was a good himmer uh, until it were good options in D.C., but we shall see. We shall see. Um, speaking of D.C., what do you – it does really do, – like, so I go back and forth on this when I talk hoops with friends, and I'm sure you do this too, where, like, the thing with Bradley Beal, when you when you look at that roster, and it's going to be a big change, and they should be fighting for a play-in spot next year and all that. But what's interesting to me about Beal – and where he's at and the odds makers this week revealed there there's a strong possibility that he is going to be a wizard on day one of the regular season next year which likely means that he is going to be a wizard for the next year because it's just significantly more difficult to move a star in the middle of the season than in the off season so um that is something that we have to plan for another year of beal and then next summer who knows like next summer is when everything can open up but do you think there is something to and this is something that like I would love to pick Bradley's uh, brain about was just that like he the the <laughs> the support around him is universal 
because he is the last man standing from the house of guards he is putting up insane scoring numbers he's having to carry this crazy usage on this bad team with just bad players around him and he looks amazing and when people criticize his defense or i'm like it, it just doesn't work like that this was something that trey had to deal with in atlanta a little bit where when the usage is so high and they have to create so much over and over again and james harden also deal with this like it's just really almost impossible to be that uh, high usage on offense and also still be an above average defender um beal benefits from this a little bit beal benefits from being the the guy who stayed and the guy who is doing what he can and putting up crazy numbers like everybody appreciates bradley beal it changes when you get into the contender game and he becomes the second guy or something like that wherever he goes like if it's golden state people will look at him differently based on how he performs the playoffs um do you think that's something he likes and that's something that is cool for him he's like i'm the number one guy no question i am doing everything everything in this team runs through me I am like, I just, I'm the vet. I am a all-star. I will continue to be an all-star here. Uh, I make a lot of money. It's pretty good. I, I, I don't need to get into the, the ring chasing business just yet. I think Bradley Bill just likes to play basketball. Mm. Um, and I think that in a world where uh, super teams are here to stay, uh, you did see the Milwaukee Bucks win a championship. They were the epitome of, uh, the local high school team uh, that stuck together from grade school now and nobody went to prep school. And comparatively, when you look at the Washington Wizards, they've been really bad. Um, but just in, in my time doing some TV work last season in Washington uh, over at NBC Sports, what I what I learned uh, about Bradley Beal um, is just he's almost carrying the torch in the same way John Wall uh, and Gilbert Arenas has uh, just that local hometown guy um, that stays. And, and I feel like this, this, these moves that they made in the offseason are going to benefit him. And I really feel like when you look at the um, – I was looking at a video with the Wizards last night, and um, they were doing like a video shoot and uh, with their new acquisitions and, and Dinwiddie and Kuzma and Montrez as well as uh, KCP. And uh, I was laughing because uh, there was a portion where uh, Dinwiddie said to Kuz, KCP, and Montrez, Lakers, come on. And it was hilarious. Like, it, it was a small moment. You saw it. It was funny. Um, you know, Bradley Bill is teaming with guys who have and, – and, and Kuz and, and KCP that have won a championship and could have potentially won one this year had – and not been a shortened season, and had it not felt like the lockout shortened season in 98-99. Um, and I say that to say this, I think the, the Wizards are off to a good start as far as acquisitions, and I also believe that Kyle Kuzma has something to prove um, this season, specifically because a lot of people have written him off, and I think he's now in a, in a northeast market uh, where he can get these... Uh, these senators, governors, and, and other uh, political people's attention. Um, but I think the East has just gotten that much better. And I think that, even, ironically, uh, people always say that about the East. And, you know, currently, uh, East Coast team or Eastern Conference team is, is an NBA champ. I felt this way when the Pistons won a championship. People were like, oh, the West is so much better. Okay, well, the Pistons are the champs. I say that to say, when I look at the Wizards and I look at what, what they're capable of, yeah, I think they've gotten a lot better. And if you look at Bradley Beal for um, his ability to 
um, score. I think that's going to continue. But I also think self-preservation is what these moves made in the same way that I think the Bulls getting DeMar DeRozan and, and Lonzo Ball uh, is going to help Zach Levine in, in the long run. Uh, just because he's done so much in scoring, I think there's so much of a parallel between Levine's role in Chicago uh, and Bill's role in Washington. And um, I, I think for Bill, the roster looks good. Now you got to win. The other thing is you could never go wrong with having a big man and a point guard. Hmm. The rest is just work. Interesting. Um, who are you higher on going into next year, the Clippers or the Lakers? The Lakers. Mm. Okay, we disagree. Make the case. I'm ready for this. Um. Well, I, I think uh, everybody's talking about age. Mm. And everybody's making a comparison to the old four Lakers with Malone, Peyton, Shaq, and Kobe. Um, and there are some differences between that team, n- namely the fact that Kobe was a lot younger as the star swingman than, I guess, LeBron. Um, but LeBron is also not normal uh, in that he's taking care of his body. I almost make a Wizards Michael comparison. Um, if I'm not mistaken, when Michael was in Washington, he averaged about 21 points per game, was dropping 50 on on, on top-tier Eastern Conference teams like the New Jersey Nets, uh, who went to the finals that year in 2001. Oh, if you go back and watch those games, like, Michael, was, he still had it. Like, Michael still had yeah. it. Like, he wasn't 98 Michael, but he he still had and also was freezing out teammates it was like i was thinking i I forgot i think this was during quarantine last year when it first started i was going back and watching some of that he absolutely could have done more and was just having fun he's like oh this this stinks around me i'm just gonna do my own thing and show you guys that i can still get a bucket whenever i want like he absolutely still had it there is a he was not patrick ewing in orlando not not at all he he wasn't michael had some knee issues and he mm. iced his knee and, and did what he needed to do. But I mean, he did team up with the Jahidi whites, the rip Hamilton's, the Jerry Stackhouse's of the world under Doug Collins. Uh, and I feel like at the end of the day, um, I seem to recall Jerry being really pissed off about the whole thing. Um, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. Uh, Jerry and Michael have a very interesting relationship. Uh, when I was at CBS, um, I had him on a podcast mm. uh, that I hosted, and he talked about um, somebody had came on, and Rashawn McLeod, retired NBA player, came on and said that um, Michael sang uh, Anita Baker's "Giving You the Best That I Got" while he torched Jerry Stackhouse for <laughs> forty. <laughs> and what ended up happening was um, that went viral, and. Rashawn was getting calls. Rashawn and I, Rashawn called me, and basically I reached out to Jerry Stackhouse, and um, he ended up coming on the show and clearing it up. He said that never happened. I'll take him at his word. Um, But I do know people who have shared stories about Michael uh, that would make you grin. Mm. Um, Michael was a smack talker. Um, I've heard stories of, you know, Michael telling a player – I heard a story. Someone told me a story about a time that um, Jimmy Jackson, who played for the Nets, mm-hmm. this was like 86, and the Bulls were playing the, the Nets. And if you look back, the, the Nets were up at half. 
the Bulls ended up coming to w- coming back and winning that game. But Jimmy Jackson was so excited that he was handling Michael mightily. And Jimmy Jackson at the free throw line said something smart to Michael. And Michael looked – this is the way the story was told to me. Um, Michael looked at Jim Jackson at the free throw line, and Jimmy had a pair of Air Jordans on. And Michael looked at Jimmy and said, you know, Jimmy – you talk a lot of shit for somebody who's wearing my sneakers on the court <laughs> playing against me. Oh, that, and, oh. and came back and won the game. Also, what do you even say to that? There's no retort. Like you can't. I mean, he's not wrong. Like no. it, the Kobe stories are almost identical too. Like I've read basically every Kobe book and MJ book and the stuff. Like the ninety to ten with. Uh, the kids in high school where he's like, nope, you're going to keep playing. We're finishing this game to 100, even though I'm up 90 to 10 and just talking the whole time. Like, it's just, some people are just wired differently. And Michael and Kobe, I think, were wired completely differently than everybody else. Um, I don't know. I just think the Clippers are in such a weird spot now because we, we saw Kawhi this week walking around Summer League without crutches, which is kind of strange. He was limping. Clearly, still stuff going on with the knee. Um... He's still just 30 years old, which is kind of wild to think about. The Kawhi is still just 30 years old. Um, but Terrence Mann popped off in the playoffs, showed that he can step in when needed. You have Paul George, who can, especially in the regular season, really carry this team offensively. You bring back Reggie Jackson. You bring back Batum. Uh, Ty Lu has probably, like, he was the best of the Final Four coaches, I think. Um, and he's going to figure out ways to keep this team afloat. But something we did see with the Lakers and these bottom four West teams. And this is something that I think is important when we look at the Lakers and the Clippers and their title odds next year is the jazz are going to run it back and win a lot of regular season games. I expect the Suns to run it back and win a lot of regular season games. Um, the Nuggets should run it back and win a lot of regular season games. You have to find a way into that top four because we just saw the Bucks won the title. Like it's it's so hard to run the gauntlet when you are playing behind the eight ball. And there there was like a lot of, oh, the Lakers are in the seven seed. They can do this and that. It's like, well, there's a reason they were in the seven seed. They were hurt and they had issues. Like, mm-hmm. it's really, really difficult to flip the script like that. So I'm curious to see if the Clippers or Lakers will be healthy enough to maintain home court advantage, at least for one round, because it's a huge thing. Teams in the NBA do not win titles very often it's almost never happens when they're a seven seed or a six seed so if you coast in the regular season it's going to come at a cost so i am so fascinated to see which team can withstand the grind because it's another quick turnaround like it's not as quick as last year but it is a quick turnaround for a full season a lot of these guys played in the olympics like it's it's a lot and we saw anthony davis did not get to do his normal month off no basketball no anything routine and we saw what that did to him this upcoming season i am i'm just so fascinated by those two things do you do you agree with that sentiment yeah i can see where you're coming from and i think you should also add the phoenix suns to that pot also mm-hmm. um, because i think when you look at um what they did this season um i i, <clears throat> I respect it but i think that this was their window hmm. this was their window with chris paul i'll add um, I think that the Denver Nuggets have gotten better every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that it seems as though unless a move happens uh, in in the next couple of weeks or a month or so, uh, Portland may be out of the way also. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I think they might I, already be out of the way with or without Dame. <laughs> nah, it's cool. It's cool. But I, I think I think when you look at that, <clears throat> I think um, you're right about Denver. Utah, to me, will still be competitive. Um, and I think uh, – but I also think that when – I think that you're still – in my mind, when I hear you discuss the Clippers and you discuss all these other teams, age is still a factor. Age mm. is the is the is the subtle word that you're not using, and I think that the Lakers have to gel though, and I think that you you have to home court is everything, mm. but I also think that when I look at the Lakers. Uh, you got a couple guys who are missing a championship and that's what they're trying to get. And I think that a healthy LeBron and a healthy Anthony Davis, um, I think can, can, can guide that team. And I think that they've added defensive specialists. They've added scorers. They've added youth. Um, I, I think the Lakers are still in a good position. Um, that's just my opinion. I do think that when you look at the, those Spurs teams, in 2003 in particular, you had some old souls on there. I mean, you played with Kevin Willis. You played with, um, you know, or played against or, or had David Robinson on that roster. Um, you, you look at over the years, Manu Ginobili, you look at Duncan. Like, those teams still were winning championships. You look at the Bulls. Um, and, and particularly, like, the second, the, the second three-peat. Um, you, you had Michael Jordan, who was 34, 35 years old. <clears throat> you had... Robert Parrish, you had Scottie Pippen, you had, like, I, I think that sometimes people forget that older teams still do win championships. It's a different NBA now, fast paced, but I still do think that um, experience is always the best teacher. And I, I think that the Lakers have something special if they utilize it right. That doesn't take anything away from the Clippers' ability to make things happen. I like Paul George. Defensively, I like them this past season. Uh, Terrence Mann, like you mentioned, has has played good basketball. Kawhi, we got to see how that ACL plays out, and they don't rush it. Um, but I also think that the Lakers have proven in the last three years that they can win a ring. And I think that adding Dwight Howard to that roster was what they were missing this past season with Anthony Davis being out. Montrez couldn't do it with what, what Dwight Howard could do, but I think a lot of it has to do uh, with Frank Vogel. I think that Vogel upset uh, Dwight Howard at times during the season uh, last year or, or the season before because of minutes and minutes restrictions. And now the, they, they've, they've removed each other from one another and now they're back and they can figure it out. So I, I think there is some familiarity with Dwight. There's some familiarity with, with Trevor Ariza, uh, who, you know, was playing well um, in when he was playing in different leagues uh, before he ended up signing with the Miami Heat. I just think the Lakers are a better fit. Uh, Melo, this is a guy that people chased out the league at one time. Melo is in a situation where he doesn't have to score 30 or 40 a night, but his veteran leadership uh, can be a bonus. Um, so I, I think Russell Westbrook, this is a guy that's still in the that's in the record books and has been a, a consistent contributor to a Wizards team last year that almost didn't make the playoffs. And he pushed them and they made it to at least the first round. They were a, a, a bottom seed, but... Um, I think you put Russell in a situation where he doesn't put so much wear and tear on his body um, and can be of added bonus. I, I, I definitely think that he, he'd be useful uh, in, in, a, in a Lakers lineup. So um, I, I don't 
think that the Clippers are a bad team either. They really impressed me, particularly against Dallas and against Utah in the playoffs. And I, I, I'm glad to just like the Nets and the Knicks. I was glad to see the both of those teams in the playoffs this past season. It's good to see L.A. have both of their teams potentially being in the playoffs next season. Have you caught any summer league at all? A little bit. Um, the other day, um, I watched. Uh, who did I watch? I watched the the late game on Monday night. Mm. Uh, I watched a bit of that, um, and then I was following along on, on Twitter. Uh, I was in acupuncture while the Nets were playing. Oh, okay. Uh, and but I but I definitely I definitely um, have caught some. This is kind of a downtime for me. Mm. And I'm trying to enjoy it before stuff starts getting revved up. But I've caught bits and pieces here. The Clippers game was the late game. I caught that game. Mm-hmm. Yes. I don't know. It's weird. I get people who like friends away because like when they figure out what I do. Like last night, somebody uh, I know was just like, "Oh, what, did you see so and so go off?" And I was like, "Okay, it's so, like." Trey Young had one of the worst summer leagues you'll ever it, it doesn't matter. Do not take anything. Like, yes, there's extreme examples where, like, Anthony Bennett, we knew right away, like, oh, this is this is not good. This is going to be a disaster. But by and large, there's just just enjoy it for what it is. But, like, don't extrapolate anything out of that. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's very unlikely you'll be able to pull anything from this. Um, that being said, Scotty Barnes, next stream on. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh <laughs> When you look at the Knicks, we haven't talked about the Knicks at all. Um, I want to wrap with the Knicks and the Kings. The NBA's two Goliaths, if you will. Like who the two just the best run franchises, great stuff on both sides of, of the country. Um Do you like what they've done? Because I think it was Real GM Radio with Danny LaRue and Jared Dubid, who they were talking about this, where Jared made a really fascinating point. And I'm interested to get your perspective on this because this is something I had not thought about that I'm wondering, because of what happened with Katie and Kyrie. The Knicks have pivoted a little bit where they are at, they see the market changing where what they're going to do is not go into a situation where they have to open up all this cap room and hope that somebody picks the Knicks because uh, just the Knicks and MSG and things like that. Instead, you sign Fournier, you extend Randall, you you extend Alec Burks, and you have all these like middle of the road contracts that you can flip for the next disgruntled star with an RJ Barrett or whoever, because you now have the contracts to make that work through trade in the off season versus using like just throwing all your chips in up like, hey, take our money. We're wide open. Just take our money. What, like this was something that I had not thought about, but like I think this might be where the league is going. Where teams, that's why you're seeing so much money spent this off season, is teams are like. I don't know, like, if you're Dallas, who struggled with this, if you're Atlanta, like, Atlanta can't do that. That's why you retain John Collins, is no one's still signing as a free agent with Atlanta until they do it. So what you do is you acquire all these athletes, and you develop Kevin Herter, you develop John Collins, you develop Onyeka Nkongwu, and you develop DeAndre Hunter so that maybe if Bradley Beal's like, I would love to play with Trey, you can you have the pieces to make that kind of trade. Um, I wonder if that's going to be the new thing in this league, uh, where it's just pay your guys, pay the middle of the road veterans so that you can move those contracts instead of betting on free agency. What do you think? Valid point. But I also think that the Knicks are, we're in a situation where a, this all season, if Chris Paul decided he did not want to stay in Phoenix, they had the cap space to do so. B, I think that Carl Anthony Towns, situation in Minnesota is a wait and see. Mm-hmm far as who they're able to bring in um 
on the Minnesota side or if Carl were to say, I want to go. But I also think that when you look at that Knicks situation and obviously because of Leon Rose's ties to CAA and, and, and Carl, you would say that. I also think we should be paying attention to the Memphis Grizzlies because they have a good future ahead of them roster wise. And I think when you look at the Knicks specifically, um, they are playing it safe because they did not sign Kevin and Kyrie. Um, But I do think that bringing Kimba home was cool. Uh, But I also have my concerns about all 29 other teams not being caught by surprise by the Knicks' prowess anymore. Uh, in the same way that kind of teams began to catch up with Jeremy Lin and Lin Sanity after a while. Um, and I think you saw pieces, particularly against the Hawks, where the Julius Randle factor was not a factor in the playoffs. And that could be an isolated incident. I think that the Hawks were just that good defensively that Julius couldn't get stuff off. But I do still think that the Knicks are missing a star. And I think that they're playing it safe by signing these short-term deals or these smaller deals until they get the big fish. Yeah, Uh, I think so too. I think think it's smart, but I also think that at some point – New York is an attractive destination pre-COVID. How that's going to work after, it's going to be interesting. Um, but I think that the Knicks, I think they did all right. They didn't. They didn't. They didn't hurt themselves. They didn't. They. They listen. The Knicks picked a safe stock in Moderna or Pfizer comparatively. It's going to sell. Mm. They didn't like go and buy GameStop and hope that it was going to surge on that particular day after everyone posts on a Reddit to buy. So I, I think the Knicks are in a good position financially. Long term, I'm interested I'm interested to see what big fish they get. Same. Um, we'll end with the Kings reportedly going after Ben Simmons and uh, Pascal Siakam interest there. Um, they're in a weird spot because like, I think a, pe- a lot of people assume the Kings are one of the younger teams in the NBA and they're not like if you go up and down like this is an older team like this is a team playing De'Aaron Fox is a team playing uh just paid Rashawn Holmes they are like with Harrison Barnes with Buddy Heald like they're an older team like this is a ready to win now team there's not a lot of youth to get excited about like Marvin Bagley is still just a huge the the biggest of question marks at this point in his career um and whether or not he can still healthy and if he can play the five at all at any point in his career defensively like there's still all kinds of questions there um, but like Ben Simmons, I don't really understand, I guess if Darren Fox is on the table, but I don't know if I'm the King, I, if I'm the Kings, I would, I'm not sure that is something that intrigues me. Um, I don't know. Like, what do you, what do you make of a Ben Simmons fit in Sacramento? What Sacramento could throw, um, at Philadelphia that would make Philadelphia a better team and give them better title odds? Like do you think that they're an interesting match? Because, I mean, if they are big on Heald and De'Aaron Fox, I mean, it's not not the worst package, right? It's not. I mean, this is a conversation that the Sixers and, and the Kings had in July. Uh, and I know that the Sixers are big one. Buddy Heald have been for a couple of years. I know that Buddy uh, in Sacramento was unhappy at first. 
because uh, he wanted his money and then Vlade got him his money and they had a love-hate relationship and now um, Vlade left and Buddy, from what I understand uh, from folks I've spoken with uh, is unhappy again and uh, I know that the Pelicans uh, were a team look were a team that were looking to, to, to retain him again um, via trade but as it relates to the 76ers from my understanding um, the Sixers uh, we're looking to wheel and deal a potential move with the Sixers or with the Kings rather, um, and that De'Aaron Fox was a non-starter mm. for the Kings. Uh, I think De'Aaron Fox is one of the most brilliant, underrated stars, point guards at large in the NBA. Uh, when I, when he came into the league, I, I remember him going toe to toe with Lonzo, and at the time, I was very happy that that uh, De'Aaron Fox was getting that attention. In, in the NCAA tournament because everybody was just so big on Lonzo. I don't have a problem with Lonzo, but I wanted to see somebody else uh, get shine in that moment. Um, and so when he came to Sacramento, I had Penny Hardaway type expectations, mm-hmm. uh, a healthy Penny Hardaway type expectations. And so when I look at um, just what uh, that potential move could be, could bring, I think it's brilliant both for Buddy Hill and or Darren Fox to go to a Northeast market, but also to see Ben Simmons be in a situation where um, he can shine out of the bright lights of mm. a Philadelphia or a Los Angeles. Uh, I think that as much as people talk about Ben Simmons, what gets lost in translation in my mind is that he is a generational talent that just needs, you know, you, you you move a plant's environment and you put the plant in sunlight and give it water, it's going to grow and it's going to flourish. But if you're growing a plant on concrete, it may not have the same results. Now, I'm not calling Philadelphia concrete at all. I went to college in the area and I know it well. Uh, but sometimes all that yelling and screaming and just, just yelling for the sake of yelling gets tiresome. Uh, and I understand the plight of, of Philadelphia fandom, particularly because they had a chance to go to the finals in 2019 and they were Kawhi Leonard buzzer beater from doing so potentially. And so when I look at um, Ben Simmons being in a Sacramento, I like it because I think everybody's so fascinated with a jumper. Um, and, and to be honest with you, if he's a point guard, I, I've come from the old school of, of, of NBA basketball where um, I feel as though um, his main job is to distribute and, uh, and he can he just happens to score. I think he has uh, a Magic Johnson, LeBron James, Grant Hill type skill set. Um, but I think that nerves have really been his Achilles heel. And I think that ultimately, um, in my mind, um, I, I think they're either going to have to make another run for it in Philadelphia or the Golden State Warriors, who did re-engage with talks with the Sixers last week, um, are going to have to expand a potential trade, which may include Portland. Um, as much as people, you know, I know that Sacramento was the team or the flavor of the week. Um, I, I think that um, I think that Damian Lillard in that whole whispered conversation of potentially going to Philadelphia makes a lot of sense. I think the New York Knicks makes a lot of sense for Damian Lillard. And if Damian Lillard is unhappy and if Ben Simmons are unhappy, how about by making both teams happy instead of waiting three, four, five years to make something happen? 
they just get it done before the season. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, the the favorite one for me is still Lillard for Simmons. I think Simmons would be so much fun in Portland, and he'd be able to just be his own guy and run his own team. And Lillard and Embiid, pick and pops, is just what we need in the playoffs. Like, I, I think that immediately makes them the favorites in the East um, in a seven-game series. That's a tough tough duo to knock out four times um brandon what can we check out from you across bali and uh wherever else this week um so uh bali sports is where you can find all my mm. written content on camera uh one-on-one interviews uh with everybody uh so first and foremost follow me on twitter at scoop b uh, as well as instagram and snapchat at scoop underscore b uh, also, subscribe to the Scoop B Radio podcast, which is available on all streaming platforms. And also, um, I do a series with my uh, – I'm a brand ambassador with Zenny Optical, uh, which is the official sponsor of the Chicago Bulls. And we just created Zenny Icons. That's I-E-Y-E Cons. And uh, our first guest for Icons was actually uh, Tony Kukoc. Mm. Uh, about a myriad of different things so we do things about once a month uh and you know we got another guest coming in uh probably september or october for that process and um yeah be looking forward to that um so valley sports uh as well as uh the zinni icon series uh and every thursday at five o'clock p.m eastern time uh i host with i host a show with lisa ann uh, called Lisa Ann and Scoop B, where we talk about betting odds through Bovada. Uh, so check that out as well. Uh, follow me on Instagram at Scoop underscore B. Follow Bovada as well. And uh, Lisa Ann and I break things down there uh, basketball-wise. All right. Well, keep up the great work, man. That you, We're both putting in a lot of a lot of hours. I like it. Hustling hard. Um, enjoy your break before the NBA season wraps back into things because it will be here before you know it's good scoop um thank you so much man and uh we'll have to do this again soon that's a lot of fun let's do it all right folks that'll do it for today's episode of the chase thomas podcast if you like today's episode feel free to leave the show a five-star rating and a review on apple Podcasts if you're an apple podcast listener i would greatly appreciate it also uh, as we wrap up here don't forget you can read me every single day at sportsrenaissanceman.substack.com again that is sportsrenaissanceman.substack.com uh, new stories in your inbox every day. Go do that. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Chase Double underscore Thomas. Uh, like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Become a patron by going to patreon.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. And last but not least, please do email me. I'd love to hear from you guys. So if you have any mailbag questions, if you have any questions for the show, anything of that nature, feel free to reach out at Chase thomas podcast at gmail.com again that is chase thomas podcast at gmail.com thank you so much guys uncle Derek. how do i do nicely done nephew chase thomas podcast hell yeah